So today we're here to learn how to find purpose in your pain. And to help me talk this through, I have a very special guest with me today. As you all know, Greg Kelly is here with me. He's managed to pull away from his very busy and demanding schedule to visit us in person here in Houston, here at our River Oaks campus, to share his story with us. And uh, Greg, I want to thank you for coming all this way. And thank you for having me. It's an honor. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, share my story with you. I'd say about half the people who are uh, worshiping with us this morning probably know your story or some part of it already, but there's a whole bunch of people that are with us today um, in person and watching online who don't know who you are. Maybe let's start there and just yeah. tell us where you're from. Okay, so my name's Greg Kelly. I'm from um, a small town that's north of Austin called Leander, Texas. Um, it's actually not small anymore. Austin's booming now, but yeah. I grew up with two loving parents. Uh, both parents worked really hard to provide for us kids and grew up with athletic brothers. So that kind of had to make me an athlete at a young age. And, <laughs> uh, but I enjoy doing sports. I, lo I love uh, doing active things, fitness and stuff like that. So I grew up with those mentors um, always on my back, making sure that um, I was successful as an athlete. Um, I also grew up with parents that pushed me to be the very best student that I could be. Mm. Um, a mother who not, not only was a model as like a workhorse, as like, you know, she cleaned houses for a living. Um, she enjoyed doing it. I mean, I learned how to be, you know, clean from my mother. And um, I grew up with a dad who sold cars for a very long time um, at a car dealership. And um, he, you know, would teach me what it means to have an honest day's work. So I grew up with family that work ethic was huge in our household. Um, not only in sports, but just in life in general. They just wanted the best for us. Yeah. And um, somewhere along the way, maybe like seventh grade or so, you met a girl. Yeah. You met a girl who's a pretty special young lady. She changed your life. So tell me a little bit about Gabri and what initially drew you to her. So I met Gabri um, in eighth grade. My friends knew her friends, so therefore we were kind of friends. And so uh, there was a time in eighth grade where we had the same math class. And um, we ended up sitting, you know, somehow in some way, we always got assigned seated, seated next to each other. And so I got to know her a little bit more for just being her, you know, math class neighbor. And after that, um, we kind of fell so hard for each other. And, you know, we're in eighth You're grade. so young. We're yeah. Crush, we're crushing on each other. <laughs> we're like, hey, you want to be boyfriend and girlfriend? And, <laughs> and so it happened. And, and all through high school, we were um, boyfriend and girlfriend. Wow, yeah. that's beautiful. All right, to back up from there, even you said you said uh, athletics have always been a part of who you are, yeah. right? Football, in particular, became a huge part of of who you are, right? yeah. As uh, at an early age, and you were really good at it. You were playing varsity ball your sophomore year at a five A Texas high school, five or six A, I can't remember, but you know, premier program, and you were showing out. Um, just talk a little bit about your dreams. I mean, I know you and, and Gabri as a, as a cheerleader as well, had her own dreams of, of reaching the NFL, but you were thinking NFL from, from a young age, were you not? Absolutely. You know, me and my family, we were in a situation where, um, I knew that my parents wouldn't be able to pay for me to go to college. Mm. Um, and I'm not a 4.0 student, so I'm not going to get an academic scholarship. So I want to go to college because I want to go to the NFL. You were good enough. I mean, you, uh, the, yeah. you were good enough to land a, a, a scholarship, a full ride. Mm -hmm. to, I mean, you had several offers, didn't you? 
Yeah, so my junior year, um, I was very blessed to be able to get some offers to go play D1 ball. My first one was to Texas State, and it was the beginning of my junior year, and then it was Rice University, and I still to this day don't know how I landed that one. I was like, man, I feel smart. And so, and, uh, but and then another one was UTSA, UT San Antonio, and um, I, you know, that's, I ended up sticking with UTSA because I went to go visit their campus, and I just, it felt good it felt like this is where i need to be something was calling me there and so yeah um i stuck with that at the end of my junior year i verbally committed to him and wow. um but yeah that's that's and where it happened i was on the road to go play college ball yeah so the end of your junior year into your senior year it, i mean there was a time of of highs and lows yeah you know as a 17 year old kid beginning of my junior year in high school both of my parents at the same time got diagnosed with medical conditions my dad just suffered a really bad stroke um half of his body was limp or limp and he just had to go into rehab um surgery then rehab and so he was just in the hospital he was bedridden there and my mom literally a couple weeks later just got backdoored with got diagnosed with brain tumors and so as a 17 year old kid i didn't know how to handle that i mean i'm like i'm like man i love my parents so much and we're dealing with that as a family, but at the same time, I'm still trying to be a, a great athlete because now I even have more incentive to make them proud. Yeah. And so I trained even harder. I trained, and then my mom finally had to go to, into surgery, and it was going to require her to do rehab as well. So there was literally nobody taking care of me. My brother's already graduated. I was the only kid in the house now. And so, with that being said, um, I had, you know, a, a best friend of mine who um, his parents kindly opened up their house to me to be able to be close to the high school. They live next to the high school. So you're moving in with this uh, friend's family uh, and they've graciously opened their doors to you. Uh, there's also uh, an in-home daycare yeah. that operates in that, in that uh, family home. And at some point along the way, um, I guess just soon after you had moved out, of that family's home and back back to your own uh, family home, something happened that would change your life forever. Uh, I moved out um, around a little bit before summertime um, out of in 2013. And I remember I was at Champions Course during the summer and we just got out of the training and I get a phone call from my brother. And I'm already living with my mom at the time and my brother leaves a message because I couldn't answer the phone. And he was saying, hey, man, there's an accusation um, that you, somebody's saying your name, molested one of the kids at the daycare. And I remember just going to my car and I was just crying. And because the first thing that enters my mind is, man, like, I got all this stuff going for me. And why is this, why are these people accusing me of this? Right. And uh, I hurry home, and I tell my mom, and she uh, she just lost for words. She couldn't believe it. She's like, "Why is somebody accusing Greg of this?" And unthinkable, right? Like it's unthinkable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it was devastating. It was terrifying. Um, it was so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And I uh, I got to a point where like I was throwing up, man. Like yeah. I couldn't handle the emotions that I was feeling. I've never felt those emotions. And so. Um, how long did it take for the 
accusation to turn into formal charges and, and, and arrest? So it took about two weeks. What That's, were those charges? The charges were uh, super aggravated sexual assault of a child. And actually, originally, it was aggravated sexual assault of a child until a couple weeks later, the DA wanted to upgrade those charges to um, a, a, a charge, I guess, that literally just got passed where it makes it even more severe when it comes to sentencing. Right. If, if somebody gets convicted with that charge. What, what would have been the sentence with a guilty verdict? What were you looking at? 25 to life without parole. So that would mean that you would have to serve that sentence day for day. Wow. So it was very serious. Very, very serious. Yeah. So I finally told Gabriel, like, this is what I'm going through. Um, I hate it. I don't know why this is happening to me. And on the other hand, my attorney at the same time is telling me, hey, tomorrow we got to turn yourself in. You got to turn yourself in the Williamson County Jail. Wow. And I told her, I remember telling my attorney, I said, I can't do that. I didn't do it. I can't turn myself in. She, and she says, that's just not how it works, Greg. Like, they're going to come and grab you yeah. in your classroom if you don't turn yourself in. Or they're going to come grab you at practice if you yeah. don't turn yourself in. I trusted in that position how naive I was about the justice system. I trusted that it was just going to sort itself out, that the facts were going to be found, the truth was going to come out, and the investigation was going to be done to find the truth. Yeah. And um, You learned a lot. I learned a whole lot. And like I said, I mean, I at that point in my life, I was I was 17, 19, 18 when I got charged. I was 18 years old. And I had no idea how to even find an attorney. Like I I didn't know. You've and never so been in any kind of I've never lived a lifestyle that where I needed a defense attorney. Right. So I remember actually telling my brother, and we joke about this now, is like I remember asking my brother, like, where do I find one? Like the yellow pages or something? And like he's like, You don't want those attorneys. And so <laughs> But, you know, we can laugh about it now, but right. at one point, it was horror. I mean, it was business. terror. Yeah. So, um, how long did the trial last again? It lasted a total of seven days. Total of seven days. And, and those of y'all that haven't seen Outcry on Showtime or heard the Maybe God podcast episode um, with Greg may not um, know just what a sham the trial was. And we don't have time to go through the yeah. whole thing. I would encourage y'all to... to to watch or listen for yourselves because, you know, it was a situation where the the victim never identified you uh, by with a picture or in person or in a lineup uh, in any way. Yeah. Um, the investigators and the police never uh, never considered any other possible suspects. Um, although there were some fairly obvious uh, uh, alternative um, suspects. Uh, you know, there was all kinds of, uh, of failure along the way in the in the justice system, and I can only imagine what this was like. Yeah, I can't. That that picture right there is just. I only remember bits and pieces of what was going on there. Um, that was when the guilty verdict got rained down to me, right. and uh, it was it was so much like just. I felt like I was murdered. Me and my family felt like I was murdered right there. Yeah. Um, I felt like I was so oppressed. Like I couldn't really just, I couldn't figure out why this was happening to me and why, how can you live in America where that can happen to somebody? You right. Know? And so that was the beginning of a nightmare for the next three years of my life. Yeah. It did, for me, it took on the, it took on the appearance of a situation where it was a, a heinous crime that had been alleged and my heart goes out to this child yeah. and, and to his family. 
Um, but it looked like they found a, another vulnerable person, sort of a uh, child of an immigrant mother, a child of two very sick parents, yeah. um, a not wealthy family, not prominent family name or anything like that. And yeah. you were disposable. I mean, you were kind of a, you were kind of just a pawn. Yeah. That's how it felt because, you know, in addition to what I said earlier about the trial, there were other factors as well. There was no DNA evidence whatsoever. Your phone showed that you weren't even at the scene of the alleged I was, crime. I was about 50 miles away. When it happened. And yeah. there's so many things that just didn't either didn't come out in the trial and they should have or were not properly considered in, in the trial. And, you know, just 24 hours after the verdict came down, the guilty verdict, you had to make this unimaginable decision. Yeah. My defense attorney walks in and says, they have come to a deal where you could give it to the jury that just found you guilty, and they can give you any number between 25 to 99 without parole, or you can practically just sentence yourself to 25 years, the minimum, waive your right to appeal the trial, um, and you get the minimum. And I remember... Turning to my family, I was like, I can't make decisions anymore. I want you guys to make this decision for me. And ultimately, they they decided to, uh, I would get out when I'm 44. And, uh, Rather than risk never seeing you outside of prison again. Yeah, they would, it would have been a risk where I would never see freedom ever. Yeah. That's, that was a real thing. And um, So you got 25 years at your sentence 25. without the uh, possibility of parole. And you forfeited the right. Uh, to appeal the trial. Yes. So I got to think at that point, that's a very hopeless place. Yeah, it seemed like all hope was lost. It's over. I'm going. I'm another, I'm another statistic in Williamson County. Um, off I go. 25 years is a long time. A whole long time. Yeah. It's, it's even longer when you're a sex offender. Yeah. Uh, tell me a, a little bit about that. What's life like inside of prison for a convicted child sex offender? The life expectancy of a child molester is not years, it's days. I had to defend my yeah, I had to defend myself first week. Physically? Physically. And so I remember somebody telling me in the Williamson County Jail, man, look, there is no innocent, there is no guilty, everybody's the same yeah. in prison. So don't try to tell people that you're innocent. Don't try to tell people whatever. Don't tell people you're on appeal. Don't do any of that. Because then they're just gonna seek you out even more. Yeah. Um, and you're saying all that is, is exacerbated or made worse by the fact you were a sex offender, a exactly. child sex offender. Exactly. It's, it's even, it's the most frowned upon thing in the world. I mean. Worse me, than murder. Worse, worse than murder. Because in prison, there's this, this saying that goes around, would you rather be loved or would you rather be feared as a man? Would you rather be loved as a man or be feared as a man? And to me, I wasn't even given the common courtesy to be either of those. Yeah. I couldn't be feared because if you're in there for murder, you're going to be feared. I mean, like you're a cold-blooded yeah. killer, right? Like you're going to be safe because people are like, well, like, man, you're a killer, right? But and but if you you go around and you're in there for a drug offense or something that's not real big, then you could still be loved and be like, hey, what's going on, you know? But if you're in there as a child molester, you're scum, man. Like you're not worthy to take a breath. Wow. So for the first year of me being in there, I had to watch my back. I had to watch where I slept. I had to watch, you know, who my next cellmate was. I had to watch where I was going to go in the rec yard. You know, I had to watch how I was walking in the hallway, who I, who I was approaching. I mean, 
it was a big learning curve for me because, again, I never lived the life where I had to watch my back, you know? I hear you. I, I can't even imagine it. Uh, I can't imagine what those, what those years in prison were like for you. And I can't believe the man sitting in front of me right now was in prison for years yeah. and watching his back the whole time. And you did talk about, though, how um, there were some, I guess, positives even about being on the inside. And uh, you met God for the first time, I guess, for real in an intimate way inside your prison cell or i guess i could say god came to meet you there like can you talk about how that happens yeah inside of prison whenever you go into prison the f- they give you three things one they give you an id card two they give you a fresh set of, set of clothes and three they give you a bible and i just I found myself sitting on the bunk and i just was so bored that and don't get me wrong i mean i, ha- I had i was a christian i was a check the box type christian before i went to prison so like i went to church and did all that right but I wasn't really living for Christ. But when I sat there and I actually, all distractions were taken away from me, all football and, you know, girlfriend and this and that was taken away from me. I sat down and within days I read the Bible cover to cover. I had nothing else to do. And it wasn't just like, it wasn't the knowledge, obtaining the knowledge of the Bible. I mean, all that's cool. I mean, just listening to all the encouraging things that Paul writes and Jesus writes, all the red letters, and the stories, right? And a lot of stories I felt like related to me, especially Joseph. and Oh, and, Old Testament Joseph. Yeah, Old Testament Joseph. Yeah. I, How did you, I mean, obviously, that was a big, falsely yeah. accused, falsely imprisoned. That was a big, I, I felt like I could resonate. I felt like I could relate to what he went through. And it, it felt good to understand like people in the past actually went through this and yeah. I got to read about it. It was a form of comfort for me. And so, um, but really studying it and digging deep, I felt like there's just the, these seeds that were planted into my heart. I mean, these, every time I read, I just felt peace yeah. in the middle of chaos. Every time that I, I cracked open the word, I just found myself reading for hours yeah. because it felt like an escape, you know? Um, and you had these other guys, these older guys in prison too, that were ministering to you, right? Yeah, like Almost I mean, like chaplains, but they were inmates. They would challenge me. You know, they would hold me accountable as, as, a, as a new Christian brother. I mean, I was like a Timothy. You know, I had a Paul. And so there's a guy named Ray Ray. He was like my Paul. I was a Timothy. And he would always check in with me, right? And so wow. all those, those, those awesome values that I was taught was preparing me to ultimately be the man that I am today. And I just think God was speaking to you in lots of different ways. And one of the sweetest ways I see God at work at, in your life at that point was probably through Gabriel. Like when I look at, at Gabriel's love for you and her loyalty, just this fierce loyalty, man, that um, for an 18-year-old girl, you know, who's some of her friends are telling her to cut bait after you go to prison. Yeah. Some of her friends are telling her, you know, that was a nice thing you had, but he's gone. You need to move on. And she stuck with you. And she was ready to stick with you until age yeah. 44 when you're out and y'all can finally be together. I mean, um, that was to me a testament of God's love uh, for you at that time. Did you experience that in any way? Like, did you feel a connection between God's love and this love of a woman? Yeah, I think I was feeling like a triangle effect here. You know, like mm-hmm. Gabriel, Gabriel and I were these two little corners and God was up top. And I felt like the more we sought, we sought God together, yeah. and the more we talked about Christ's love for us, we were growing more together as, as a couple and in all places, prison. I mean, like to this world in our culture, we think that being able to 
touch each other and going on dates and cuddling and kissing and sexual intercourse, that's a form of falling in love. It's not. Yeah. It's finding love in ways that, man, challenge you as individuals and growing a connection together, like tying souls, man. And so yeah. we found love through letter writing. We found love through asking each other questions, getting to know each other very well, but at the same time, having a conversation about literally the rock in our relationship, which is Jesus. Yeah, really an honor to be able to talk not only with you, but also with Gabriel and yeah. our and our uh, Maybe God interview. And um, I thought I'd like to share a, a little clip of part of uh, part of our talk that day. Um, why don't we give this clip a listen? Absolutely. When he first went in, I was terrified. We didn't get to speak for a while because he had to get into the system. And we started off with letters. It was really beautiful looking back of the transformation we had and how deep we dove into our relationship yeah. and how God really became the center of it. I'd love to hear one of those letters. Is that asking too much? No, yeah, I can do that. Do you want me to read it since I'm reading oh, it to you? Oh, do you want to do it with the, your voice? Okay. Whoever wrote, <laughs> he wrote the letter. The letter. Okay. Yeah, you wrote it. I wrote it. I started saying, during the summertime here in prison, is a hot time of year. One of the greatest ways to mentally leave this place is to take a notice of God's beautiful creation. Even though every inmate never finds time to stop sweating, God's beauty still remains. Every day during the spring and summer, as I came back from work, I would pass the beautiful garden that sat right outside the landscaping shop. The garden was full of lilies tulips, roses, and other captivating flowers. In the midst of a place I did not belong, I always found victory in imagining that I was picking a beautiful flower and handing it to my Gabriel, explaining to her that I see you as I see this flower. Even though the flower is a pleasing image to look at, it has great purpose. The flower is giving. It supplies the bees with nectar, and the flowers always expecting, coming in the summer and leaving in the winter, it never changes. God does not just create things to be pleasing to our eye or even to be put into use, but also to prove his existence. It starts with having eyes to see and ears to hear after allowing God to remove a veil that was covering my eyes for so many years. I now see how amazing Jesus Christ is. And I'll see that I, Greg Kelly, along with the whole world, was a creation in his image. So now I leave you with a question. If God creates something as beautiful as the skies, animals, and flowers, how much more beautiful are you to Gabriel Anderson? I love you, Greg Kelly. So what that was, was that was like after a long weekend of a Nicholas Sparks binge. <laughs> like that was just like, I read probably four Nicholas Sparks books and I thought I was a poet. So, it's beautiful. Yeah, man. Like I didn't even want my wife to hear that because <laughs> I didn't want her to think it was possible for a man to speak to a woman in that way in 2020 or whatever. Like that was amazing. Yeah, it was like Solomon, man. Like it was like yeah. Solomon. It was just, it was, it was, it, I was at a point, man, where I was just, I was so tapped in with God and like still to this day, I mean, just hearing that um, challenges me just to go back to being that man. I mean, like, and I mean, when you're, when you, when you really are separated from every other distraction and the only thing that's at your vocal point is the cross. Yeah. I mean, 
this transformation starts to happen in your life, in your heart, in your mind. I mean, this mind transformation. Paul right. even talks about it. I mean, he's transform your mind. I mean, it's just like, it's amazing, man. And so I, um, I, get, I get to this point, man, where it humbles me every time because the, the man I was in prison, even though I wasn't supposed to be there, it, it's kind of like, it's weird because like I was becoming a man I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And in the midst of chaos, yeah. there is still beauty. And it's, it's, it's crazy. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see it. And, and so for those that don't know, Greg, you were in prison for three years. And then um, some guardian angels got involved with yeah. the case and, and helped uh, start a process of the, the criminal justice system reevaluating the case. And, yeah. and for five years, you waited, all told. Three years in prison and then another two years just in this strange holding pattern yeah. afterward. How did you fight the feeling that you were being robbed of something in the prime of your life as a football player, especially? Like, how did you, how did you hold back the anger and rage? The only thing I was focusing on, man, was just be free. And what's already done has been done. I mean, I can't undo it. Those were the cards that were dealt to me in life. That took a long time for me to realize that and to accept that. There's a scripture that I taped to my bunk. And when I read it, it kind of just answered that why question where I just have to stop asking why. And I have to now understand that in this world, there will be trouble, mm. right? But God, Jesus tells us to take heart because he's overcome the world. So there, at that point, I realized, okay, it's guaranteed we're going to have trouble. It's yeah. guaranteed each and every day, somebody's probably going to get falsely accused. Mm. Somebody probably, something bad's going to happen to somebody. There is going to be trouble. But I think where we um, kind of, mess up is how we react to it. At that point, I felt like I was mature enough to understand that stop getting caught up, Greg, about trying to figure out why this happened to you and understand that I'm going to be here and walking through it with you. Wow. And so I think that's where we can now understand that we don't have to go through this life experience alone, that God's going to be there every step of the way. Jesus is going to intercede. He's going to be a counselor. He's going to be a healer. He's going to, Amen. he's going to be there for you. And so, um, I about you know right when I got released, I was just so, and I was released on bond. I was so thrilled just to be back with my family, but at the same time, you know, there was this cloud still hanging yeah, over course. me, and that that was the court of criminal appeals. And in 2019, so after two years of waiting. Yeah. They finally came down with their decision. And yeah. what what was their decision? And 2017, I was released on bond, waited two years. Every Wednesday, I checked this little website, Court of Criminal Appeals, out of all ways you can check to see if your life is going to be restored to you. <laughs> it's through a website. Yeah. And so every Wednesday at 9 a.m., I refreshed this page to see if I was under this little subcategory of relief granted. And if you're in that category, it meant that you are going to be exonerated. Yeah. And it came down on November 6th when in the middle of Midtown, New York, Manhattan, (laughs) we were in our little 400 square foot apartment. Me and Gabriel, she was up there doing a dance semester, but I was there by myself with a documentary crew and it was just us two. And I just clicked refresh, looked at it, and I was at the top of the list. 
relief granted, I was exonerated. Exonerated. And I mean, if you watch the documentary, you'll see my reaction. It oh just, my gosh. It was, um, it was just so much freedom. Tell me what life's been like for you since exoneration. Um, it, it's been, it's been so blessed. I mean, um, I, to give it a word, it's just like abundance of just blessings mm -hmm. and joy and life and freedom. And I think, I think um, I have a really big measuring stick on how to uh, measure freedom now in my life. You know, mm. be able to hop in my car and, and drive a truck and and be able to, um, you know, go and, and hang out with Gabriel wherever we want. We can go vacation in Cabo. We can go and, and do whatever and just, just see the world as something that is just so beautiful. And because I was once in a place where I was behind bars and I was behind cinder blocks, I was behind red brick. I was, I felt like I was oppressed and that I, I felt like, man, just the world was ending. And I felt like I was in a world inside of a world of complete violence and chaos where, but out of all that, the thing I took home the most was that no matter where you're at, if it's in prison, especially in prison, yeah. there's a saying that goes in prison where those bars and those, those walls are meant to keep you in, but they can't keep God out. Yeah. So you see a lot of prison reform happening within men, within wow. people, within inmates. The transformation because they're there, God's got their attention, He's gonna change their life. Mm. The thing about pain, you know, the thing about suffering for me is I've learned to be really good at it. You know, I mean, it's it sucks to just like say that, but like I was these cards were dealt in my life. It was a trouble. It was a it was a it was a form of adversity that was thrown at me. And that happens to everybody. Some way, some form, some shape. Somebody's gonna have some type of adversity in their life. It could be something as extreme extreme as being falsely accused yeah. of the worst crime in the world and getting thrown into prison for twenty five years. Or it could be something where, you know, you hear bad news about cancer or something, right? And so yeah. um no matter what, I mean, tapping into the word of God was the best decision I ever did. Being on that bunk and just completely not knowing anything about anything in the Bible. I just opened it up and started reading and I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. Maybe, and then it, it always hits me that right when I open it up, it's like, it's exactly what I need to hear. Yeah. And so that's one thing about pain is every pain that I've went through in my life with this specific case, there has been a promise of joy. There's been a promise of a lesson learned there's been a promise of making me into a man that he wants me to be. Um, because I feel like, you know, going through diverse or going through adversity, those lessons that you learn are the biggest lessons in life. Yeah. Is the ones you learn in the middle of adversity. And you wouldn't learn them any other way. Right. There's exactly. no other set of circumstances where you would learn the same lessons yeah. about yourself and more importantly, about God. And sometimes I think because we want to make God seem like a nice guy, uh, when when we or someone we love goes through something, we want to say, "Well, look, that God's not doing that to you. God God won't give you more than you can handle, etc." God has been giving people more than they could handle as long as people have been around That's in the true. in Bible times, yeah. and it seems to be a recurring theme. And it's not because God is mean. It's because there's more to life than this life. Mm. And we're being prepared for something 
that we don't even know about yet. And part of, I think, growing in Christian maturity means accepting the fact that even some of the awful things that happen in the world, that happen to us as human beings, that has happened to you, you know, if it wasn't, you know, God's perfect will for you, maybe it wasn't, but God still allowed it to happen. Almighty God has the power to stop certain things from happening, but he allowed things to happen. And, and there must be, if he's God, there must be some greater reason yeah. than we can comprehend. And I feel like that's something, that's a gift that you were given in prison. Yeah. I kept hearing it pop up in what you said, Greg, it was perspective. Like you are, you are able to appreciate the beauty of life and love in ways that most of us miss because of those three years that you spent in prison. Like the bigger questions we're asking here are things like, why do we suffer? Why does a good and loving God allow us to go through seasons like you went through or seasons like some of y'all might be going through right now? And, and I don't know everything. I, I, we don't have the answers. Our finite minds can't comprehend what God is up to all the time. But there are some things we do know, and these are, can be clues for us along the path. I know for a fact that if Greg Kelly had not gone through what he went through in you know, 2014 to 2019, he would not be sitting here right now talking to us about Jesus. He might not know Jesus at all. He and Gabriel's relationship wouldn't be what it is today. We wouldn't be aware of, of the, the shortcomings of our justice system and, and how many Greg Kellys there are yeah. sitting behind bars right now because they were falsely accused, falsely convicted. Like there are beautiful things that come from the messiest things. Yeah. And in, in the midst of the pain, it's hard to see that. Sitting in prison, it's hard, I'm sure, for you to have seen that. But when you get through it and you look back, you see all along that God's been working in it yeah, and, and through it for, for something bigger and better than we ever could have imagined. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's why you know, Paul in the New Testament says that he's working in all things for, for good for those who love him. When we um, decided to put a title on the Maybe God episode that we did with Greg, the title we came up with was What, what If He Didn't Do It? And obviously the, the main reason is it was uh, the, the, the question of what if Greg Kelly didn't do this crime he was convicted of. There was a, an underlying meaning there too. Yeah. There was also the question of what if God had not allowed Greg Kelly to go through what he did? Would Greg know God as his father in an intimate way, the way, the way you do now? Yeah. And especially in light of everything you went through and I know you lost your father through all of this, yeah. the, the trial and everything. And, um, and yet you also gained a father, yeah. capital F forever father, <laughs> yeah. even through all of the pain. And so Greg, and I'm just so thankful for you, for your testimony and your witness, for your willingness to share this story. Man, I'm sure it would be easier to just ride off into the sunset and play football <laughs> and get married and, and uh, enjoy life but the world needs to hear your story and how you got to know God inside those cinder block walls yeah. and behind those bars. So thank you. Amen. Thank you. And thank you all for, uh, for being with us today as well at the Story Church. Listen, if you're going through a dark time right now, I want you to know that you're not alone. 
There's a, a lot of folks that are sitting beside you right now in the, in the worship room or maybe uh, that are tuning in with you online that know exactly what it's like to walk through darkness and not know which way to go. I just want you to know that you're not alone. Others are with you, but God, more importantly than that, God is with you even in the suffering. And he will, if you let him, he will use this time of darkness, this time of pain, and he will restore it and redeem it for your good. And he will bring you closer to him than you've ever been. And he will make your purpose in life clearer than it's ever been. So let's pray together. Father, uh, we open our hearts to you right now. We open our broken and bruised hearts to you and, and we give you our pain. We confess that we've been bewildered and confused about why we've had to go through certain things in life. And some of us right now are just, we're in the midst of it. We don't know where you are in the storm. God, it's the hardest thing to remember you and your faithfulness when it seems like our whole life is a mess. And um, so we pray for that perspective right now, especially for those who are deeply broken those who are walking in deep darkness, Lord. Remind us that your light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Remind us that in this world we'll have trouble, but not to worry, to take heart, for you've overcome the world. Remind us that you are near to the brokenhearted. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We pray that we would have the faith to walk with you even through the darkest times. We thank you for Greg Kelly and his witness and his testimony, and thank you that justice was done in his case. And we pray that justice, more justice, would be done in this broken world, Lord, where, um, where injustice seems to reign supreme at times. And so, God, we look to you, our light in the darkness, and we thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.